0: right guys let's make a start Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3 which is page 997 2 Timothy chapter 3 I'm going to read it and then we'll pray and we'll get stuck in 2 Timothy 3 996 page 996 but understand this For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those, as was that of those two men." You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that it is because of your love that we gather this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it here now in our hands, in our laps, able, uh, able to hear from you as you speak to us through your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide us into truth for the glory of the Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question as we start. Do you love God? Do you love God? That might be a strange question to ask. If you're kind of regular at church, if you're kind of part of the body here, you probably think, well, I wouldn't wouldn't be here if I didn't. Of course I love God. Some of you might be sitting here this morning, not, not sure. You think that you do, you think that you might, you think maybe that you should, but maybe you're not 100% sure. Do you love God? There's a quote from someone, and I couldn't find who said it, but they said, we become what we love, and what we love shapes who we are. That makes sense, doesn't it? We become what we love, and what we love shapes who we are. So you think of all the different kind of things that we might love in our lives, and And how they actually shape us into being who we are. They form our character. They form our personality. Do you love God? Does your life and your devotion reflect your love of God? Let me ask that in another way. Are you living a godly life? Are you living a godly life? The passage we just read there from chapter 3 The Apostle Paul, who writes this letter to a young man called Timothy, who's a pastor in a church in Ephesus, gives us a a picture of two different types of people. He he shows us that there are people who love themselves, and then you have people who love God. So look down at at verse 2 of chapter 3. Paul goes through a list of, of what these people who love themselves look like. He says these people will be lovers of money, they'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure. That's how he describes people who love themselves. In verse 13, you see that he he describes these people as well as evil people. People who who love themselves, instead of loving God, are people that Paul describes as evil. Evil. Now that word, when we say it, kind of brings all sorts of connotations, doesn't it? Like, we don't want to be called evil. Like, if I came and said, you know, because you were doing some of those things, actually, I think you're an evil person, all sorts of kind of heckles would, would rise up. But that word evil it simply means that, that you are corrupt in your nature. It means that you are depraved. Like, what it means at its root is that you're a sinful person in your nature, You are corrupt in your nature, which means you are sinful. That is what these people are. These people who love themselves. They are depraved. They are corrupt. They are a sinful people. And you see as you read through this passage that some of them that he's describing are are deceivers. But they're also deceived. Did you see that? Verse 13. Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. Deceiving. And being deceived. So, there are specific people in the context of, of the letter here who are literally going around the church in Ephesus a few thousand years ago. This church that Timothy is trying to, to lead, and they are bringing about division. We, we uh, met a couple of them last week in chapter two. People who are bringing in false doctrine, they're trying to teach heresy, they're opposing um, Pastor Timothy, they're trying to kind of bring division within the church. These are, these are nasty people, they are deceiving people. But Paul hints at why they would do this. They are deceiving because they are deceived. They are evil people. By their very nature, they are corrupt. They are sinful. Their nature is a sinful nature, which is why they don't just uh, be deceived, but they are also deceiving other people. The Bible also describes kind of being corrupt in our nature as being spiritually blind, being unable to see the truth of who God is. And in fact, the Bible says that that is our default position before God. Every single one of us who's born into this world, the default position of all humanity is that we are blind, spiritually blind. We are deceived and we are corrupt in our nature. So we may not all be deceivers. We might not kind of live a life going into different churches, trying to, trying to pull people away and teach uh, false doctrine. But every single one of us is born into this world, Deceived corrupt and blind. Every single one of us is born into this world in opposition to God. That is our spiritual condition, folks. We are sinful, we are deceived, and we are spiritually blind. And it's not like we can undo our kind of blindness. It's not like we can undo our our being deceived. This isn't kind of an academic exercise where we can kind of pull a book from the library of how to, how to get rid of our spiritual blindness or how to be undeceived. This isn't like a physical endeavor where if we just kind of work at this and just really kind of work hard, we can, we can undeceive ourselves. That's not possible. It takes God to remove our spiritual blindness because he is the one who created us. It takes God to change our, our corrupt nature because he is the one who created us. It takes God to do a work to to remove the deception that we sit under. A deception that we are somehow able to save ourselves. A deception that we are somehow able to, to find life in all of its meaning. A deception that we are able to kind of enjoy all the good gifts of God without him. We are being deceived. It takes God to remove that deception, that blindness, that sinful nature from us. Which is exactly what he does for those who are his. That is exactly what he does to you. If you're sitting here this morning and you know that you are a sinner who's been saved by the grace of God, that is exactly what God has done. He has changed your nature. Your default nature coming into this world is being opposed to God. And Jesus, through his perfect life, his death, his cruel death on a cross, he takes on your corrupt nature and he gives you his Perfection. That is what happens on the cross. The great exchange, Martin Luther calls it, and we kind of think of Luther this week as we think of the the anniversary of the Reformation. He calls it a great exchange, that, that Jesus takes all of our sinfulness and in exchange we get all of his righteousness. He takes our default nature, which is to be opposed to God. He takes that away and replaces it with his perfection. And if that is you this morning, You need to know that you didn't do that. You didn't kind of muster up that belief. You didn't muster up that strength to be able to to change your nature. God did that. Left your own devices, you would stand in opposition to God. Left your own devices, you would stay in your nature, your sinful nature, your spiritual blindness, your deception, heading towards punishment and eternal death that is the inevitable destination of all of those who oppose God. If you love God this morning, folks, if your answer to my question a few minutes ago was yes, I do, I love it. If you love God, then that is a work of God. God poured his love into you, which has enabled you to love him. God did that work. But it's not enough just to say Yes, I love him. It's not even enough just to live in ways which show that we love him. Paul says in chapter 3 here that the days that we live in now are full of people who have an outward appearance of godliness. An outward appearance of living a godly life or living a life in devotion to God. He says says the world is full of these people. Look at verse 5. It lists out all of the qualifications, all of the markers of those who live for themselves, those who live in opposition to God. And he says, these people have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. They deny its power. They don't actually have a genuine love for God at all. They don't have a genuine devotion to God. They may show it on the outside, but inwardly there is no evidence of the power of God transforming their hearts. They are still being deceived that's my story as a young man I had the outward appearance of godliness if you met me when I was in my teenage years you would think that this guy kind of loves Jesus he's serving in the church I was kind of leading different things in the church I was a good son to my parents I was good at school I did all of the right things yet inwardly there was no evidence of the power of God transforming my, my my life In fact, every single one of those things that Paul lists out in verse 2, I could say was me. I was proud. I was arrogant. I was abusive. I was disobedient to my parents. I was ungrateful. I was unholy. I was heartless and I was unappeasable. I slandered God. I didn't have any self-control. I was brutal. I didn't love good. I was treacherous. I was reckless with the things that I had. I was conceitful. I loved pleasure rather than loving God. In my teenage years, I was a thief. I was a deviant. Outwardly, I had the appearance of godliness. Inwardly, my heart was corrupt. Paul gives us a picture of two people. People who love themselves. And then people who love God. See, the list in verse two ends with a different type of person. Verse 5, having the appearance of godness but denying its power. But before that you see, you see that there are people who are lovers of God rather than lovers of pleasure. There are people who love themselves and then there are people who are lovers of God. There are people who live in contrast to the life and the character that you see in verse 2, 3 and 4. There are people who do live lives which are godly lives. Not just externally, not just kind of a picture of of godliness on the outside, but internally as well. Genuinely loving God, genuinely being devoted to God, genuinely having a heart change of our nature, being towards sin and being held by sin to having a nature which which is God's nature. Being holy, being righteous, having godly lives, not just externally, but internally as well. And I know that is a lot of us here this morning. That we are lovers of God, not lovers of self. The reality is, it is not easy. It is not easy to be lovers of God. It is not easy to live godly lives, to, to live a life in devotion and love to God. The world opposes us. Our flesh opposes us. The devil himself opposes us when we try and live godly lives. There are different voices which are crowding in on us as we try and live with genuine love, genuine devotion, live godly lives. Different voices which crowd in and try to deceive us again. You see here in verse 6 to 9, Paul shows us the two types of deception that might come up on us. In verse 6 and 7, you see a subtle deception. You see these people who are kind of preying on vulnerable women. This is literally happening in the church in Ephesus. They are preying on vulnerable, weak women, sneaking into their lives, trying to find women who are weakened by their sins so they can come in and grab them and lead them astray. There's a subtle kind of deception going on there. Verse 8 to 9, you see a more open deception. People who are standing in open opposition to God, trying to win God's people away from him and towards themselves. He gives an example from, from the book of Exodus. You might know uh, this story where um, God sends uh, 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 Moses and, and, and Aaron to Pharaoh to try and uh, bring his people out of slavery. And the way that he does it is through pl- uh, 10 plagues. And Moses kind of brings about these, these plagues. As kind of, he goes through each one in 10. And each time he, 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 he makes this manifestation, manifestation of this plague, Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. But the first two plagues, they are they able to counter the plague that Moses sends out and particular uh, magicians that aren't named necessarily in Exodus, but we, we know their names from this passage here are Jannes and Jambres. It's the names of these two magicians standing in opposition to God, deceiving the people in front of them. It's interesting in chapter 8 of Exodus, verse 18, they get to the third plague, which is, anyone want to give her a guess? See how well he... Not quite. Not frogs. Nearly. They fly. Gnats. It's the plague of gnats, the third one. And Moses kind of um, puts out this plague and the gnats kind of cover the area. And the magicians can't do it. They try their best, but, but they ha- they're not powerful enough to, to do everything that God is doing. Actually, these people who are openly deceiving God may get so far, but they're no match for God. They're no match for God. You see that in the life of these two magicians. And folks, it's no different today. That was thousands of years ago. It's no different today. There are people around about us, around about this church, around about our community, who will try and deceive us either subtly or even openly standing against God. And in fact, in verse 13, Paul says, evil people and apostles will go on from bad to worse. Actually, it's going to get worse. We need to know that we live in a world which is opposed to God. And year after year, it was getting worse, but we also need to know that these people are no match for God. They're not as powerful as God. And in fact, Paul says one day that that the deception will be revealed for everyone to see. They're no match for God and their weakness will be revealed, but they will still work hard to deceive us and persuade us into ungodliness. So here's another question. How do we live godly lives in a world that is opposed to us and is trying to deceive us? How do we live godly lives in a world that is opposed to us and trying to deceive us? Well, Paul gives us a clear answer. We abide in the truth. We abide in the truth. How do we live godly lives? Abide in the truth. Listen to to verse 10 to 17. I'm going to read this whole section again. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, My patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. If we want to live godly lives, we do what Paul asks us to do in verse 14. Continue in what we have learned And firmly believed. Continue in what we have heard and firmly believed. He's talking about the word of God. Another way of saying that is to abide in truth. To remain, that's what abide means to kind of be grounded in something, to remain in it, to continue in it. If we want to live godly lives, folks, we need to abide in the truth, to continue in what we know to be true from God's word and what we have believed. And that's not going to be easy. What does Paul say in verse 12? He doesn't kind of give a great advertisement for godly living. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, will be comfortable and happy and safe. No, we'll be persecuted. That's what he says. If you want to do this, Timothy, abide in the truth. But, but you need to know that persecution is, comfort, is coming. Suffering is coming. If you want to live a godly life, know that you will be persecuted. The God's opponents will stand against you. And Timothy knows this to be true. He's, he's either heard or he's seen in, in person how Paul has been persecuted in Antioch, in, in Iconium and in Lystra. Timothy knows that living openly godly lives in a world that is opposed to God will lead to opposition. Paul says in verse 11 that, that he was kind of relieved of this persecution. But remember where he's writing from. Where is he writing from? Prison. So that in some sense, living a godly life will lead to persecution and we will be saved from persecution, but, but that may not always happen. Paul has seen that happen in these three places, but he is also writing with chains around his ankles, knowing that he is heading towards certain death. We will be relieved from some persecution and we may not be relieved of others. But Paul isn't warning Timothy here. He isn't saying, oh, by the way, Timothy, watch out, persecution's coming. He's given a statement of fact. If you live a godly life, persecution will come. He isn't saying to Timothy, okay, persecution's coming, so, so slow down, stop what you're doing. Kind of, kind of re-evaluate your, your ministry because persecution's coming. No, he says, live a godly life. Persecution is coming, but you want to live a godly life, Timothy. I find this advice fascinating. Timothy is in the middle of a crisis. He is facing opposition internally within the church and externally. There are deceivers all around and trying to win people away from God. Literally, there are people going home to home, looking for vulnerable women in the church, trying to steal them away. Timothy is surrounded by ungodliness. And the apostle Paul's counsel to him the most, the most effective way that Timothy can, can live in amongst all of that opposition is to live a godly life. To live a godly life that abides in truth. Timothy, in, in amongst all of this opposition, in amongst all of the kind of identity crisis that you're having, the best thing that you can do is to root yourself, is to ground yourself, is to not move from the truth of God's word and to live a godly life. And here's why. He gives six quick uh, reasons in, in the remaining verses there why, why that is good for him. Why it is good for Timothy to live a godly life which abides in the truth of God's word. Firstly, you see in, in verse 14, Paul calls him to, to remember. He says, he says um, continue in what you have learned and, and believed. Abide in the truth, knowing from whom you learned it. He tells them to kind of think back, think of who who gave you this truth, who passed this on to you. A great reason for for abiding in the truth of God is because we're able to look at the lives of the people around us who are doing the very same thing. Timothy's able to look at his mother and his grandmother and see the fruit in their lives as they've abided in truth. Timothy's, Timothy's able to look at Paul and see the fruit of abiding in truth in Paul's life. And what does that look like? Verse 10. This is what it looks like for Paul to abide in truth and live in a godly way. He says that he has an aim in life. He has faith. He has patience. He has love. He has steadfastness. Timothy, look at those around you. Look at the fruitfulness in their lives as they abide in the truth. Next, next, Timothy, see that the word of God, the truth of God is the power, has the power to lead people to salvation. You see that in Verse 15. He says it has the ability to make you wise for salvation. It is not that this book saves. But it leads us to see that we need a savior. It has such power to to kind of expose the inner workings of our heart. And point us towards our desperate need for Christ Jesus. So Timothy abide in truth so you can lead others towards salvation. Next you see in verse 16. These are the very words of God. He says it is breathed out by God. All scripture, everything that we have here in front of us is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. These words that we have have read and we have sung uh, this morning are the very words of God. That is a reason in and of itself to want to abide in truth, to continue in truth. That we have in front of us the very words of God. Just, Just think about that. God who is infinitely more powerful than anything we will ever know has spoken and we have his words right here. And he is speaking, not just kind of into thin air, but he is speaking to you. Why wouldn't you want to abide in that? Next you see in verse 16, a, a, a good reason to abide in truth is that it is profitable for us. He says that, all um, scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness. So teaching and, and reproof, he kind of sets these, these um, uh, ways that it is profitable into two sections. Teaching and reproof first. So the word of God is able to teach us about God. Is able to teach us about ourselves. And is able to reproof us. That word means rebuke. Paul's talking about doctrine here. The word of God is able to show us good doctrine. We're able to be taught good doctrine. Next you see that it's good for us for correction and training in righteousness. Paul's talking about our life here. It's able to kind of correct us when we're veering off a path and heading towards error. And it's able to train us, make us more like Christ. It is profitable for us for good doctrine and for life. Verse 17, you see that it's good for us because by it, we are equipped. It doesn't just train us to be better people. The word of God, as it, as it kind of trains God's people, knows that, that we have a job to do. We're not just kind of saints who will just endure this course until the end. We, we've been talking about this week after week. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are priests in a holy kingdom. And the word of God is able to equip us towards that end and here's the final reason why it is good to be people who live godly lives that abide in the truth you see this actually at the front end of the chapter in verse four because we love god that is why we abide in truth that is why we continue in truth that is why we root ourselves in god's word because we love him think about it i asked you right at the start do you love god if you love someone, you will listen to them, right? So you think about the people in your life that you love. I think about Elizabeth, my wife. If I didn't listen to her, that wouldn't show that I loved her. I think about my kids who I love dearly. If I kind of came home from work and they were talking to me and I just kind of came in with my fingers in my ears, which sometimes maybe I do without, without them seeing, just because they talk all the time. But if I did that all the time, would that show that I'm loving towards them? You guys, I love you dearly. I spent time with some of you this week. Would it be loving towards you if I sat there and just kind of played on my phone or kind of just wandered around not listening to you? No. I love you and so I will sit down and listen to you. I love my wife so I will sit down and listen to. I love my kids and so I will sit and listen to. I love my God and so I want to listen to him. Don't you? If we love him, we will listen to him. Paul gives us so many reasons why we should be people who want to live godly lives that abide in the truth. So what does that look like? What does it look like to abide in truth? Well, firstly, you see in verse five, it looks like avoiding spending time with deceit. Avoiding spending time with deceit. It says in verse five, there are people who have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Keep away from such people. Jesus gives an analogy in the gospels about our life being like a house. And he says, before before you are saved, before you, you are God's people, your life is possessed by the enemies of God. And then when God comes in, he takes over what he calls the strong man and he possesses your life. He possesses your house. When God comes in, God who is truth, comes and takes over your life and he pushes out the enemies of God. If you kind of continue that analogy of our life being a house and God being in and about our house, pushing out the enemies of God, how reckless would it be for us in a life full of deceit, in a life of those who are coming in subtly and openly to deceive us, how reckless would it be for us to throw the windows of that house open or leave the front door of that house open to let anyone in? How reckless would that be? Folks, we need to discern what we are letting into our lives. We, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean that we can kind of leave, leave, leave windows open and leave doors open and let anyone and all sorts of things come in and tell us everything that they want us to tell them. We need to discern what we are letting into our life. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. When Elizabeth and I got married, Elizabeth loved ladies' magazines and um, magazines like you later, like um, uh, uh, Cosmopolitan and that's kind of, I can't remember anymore, but magazines like that, if you're a lady, you might know what, what sorts of magazines they are, but these were kind of gossip magazines. So if you wanted to know what the latest kind of um, uh, gossip was going on about these two celebs, then, then you picked up one of these magazines and you would read it and Elizabeth loved these magazines. And she read a book by a a missionary called um, Isabel Kuhn, which really convicted her heart. That Actually, gossip is not a godly thing. That is not a character that we want to bear as God's children. And so she stopped uh, getting these magazines, cleared all the magazines that she had, removed this voice speaking into her life, which was deceiving her, telling her lies, feeding her lies about who she was and the particular image that she had to have as a woman, the way that she needed to conduct herself as a woman, the way that all these people were getting it wrong around her or getting it right, she shut the window on that and closed the door and removed that voice of deception. Let me say to us this morning, if, if you are allowing Twitter or Instagram or Facebook to lead you into ungodliness, avoid it, folks. Avoid it if you're reading certain magazines or blogs, if you are engaging in certain things on the internet which are showing you unwholesome images, avoid it like the plague. Avoid deception. Often, you know, the biggest voice of deception in our lives is ourselves as well. Is our flesh kind of speaking to us, telling us lies, telling us to kind of be, be judgmental towards this person or this type of person or con- to, to condone this type of behavior that maybe we see in our life that we know by God's word is incorrect, but our flesh rises up and whispers in our ear, deceptive, convincing words that, that it's okay just one more time. Avoid deception. Avoid the charm of deceit that comes as our flesh rises up and whispers sweet nothings into our ears. We avoid deception by being grounded in God's word. We avoid deception, folks, by being in community with one another. Avoid spending time with deceit. Next, it looks like saturating our life with truth. Saturating our life with truth. Let me just read that key verse again in verse 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Abide in truth. Remain in truth. Continue in truth. That word abide is a, is a, is a, a word that has a kind of constant action. It isn't something that we kind of step into one day and then step step into the next. This is something which is a constant in our life. Something that we remain in. Paul is saying, Don't depart from the truth of God. Remain in the truth of God. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. I'll just read it. Don't worry about turning to it. But it has the same kind of message that Paul is trying to say. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Remain in God's word. Abide in God's word So that we don't drift away from God. The picture there is that life is a river. And the Christian life is is a life where we are swimming upstream. We are swimming against the tide. As sin and Satan and our flesh are trying to push us downstream. We swim against it. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying if we do not think back. If we do not remember. If we do not abide and remain in the truth of God. We will drift downstream. With the world, with the flesh and the devil saturate your life with truth because if we don't we will drift away from God into further deceit therefore abide in truth because if we don't we cannot live godly lives you think about what we celebrated this week on Thursday evening most of us celebrated the reformation some of you evil wicked people had pumpkins and celebrated Halloween, we'll pray for you. Um, on, On Thursday, we celebrated 502 years of the Reformation. And what was the kind of key defining thing about the Reformation 500 years ago? This, this is what they were fighting for. Countless men and women who literally gave their lives so that we can have this in our hands. You're martyred so that we can have this in our hands. And and we have, some of us have two copies of this in our laps this morning. Do you know there are 1.5 billion people in the world today who do not have this in their own language. And we are sitting here this morning with multiple copies. Look at what is in our hands, folks. The very words of God. Speaking truth into our lives. Are you listening to him? If you love him, you will listen to him. And you will prioritise his voice in your life over every other voice. And yes, we are struggling in a world that opposes us. Yes, we are swimming against the tide. But stop making excuses. Here, let me give you nine very, very, very quick, practical ways that we can saturate our life with truth. Number one, put your phone away. Number two, Maybe get a new Bible. Maybe that is what you need just to to kind of refresh your walk with God. Get a new Bible. Get one of the, the kind of devotional Bibles that we've got here. If you can't afford one, I will buy you one. I would love to buy you one. Get a new Bible that you can kind of write in, that you can scribble in, that you can underline, that you can highlight. Number three, schedule your time. Schedule time when you can literally sit down and saturate your life with God's truth. Make this something regular. Make it something that is at the same time every day if you can. And you might think, oh, I can't do that. I've got so many other things to do. Yes, you can. You you schedule so many other things in your life. You schedule brushing your teeth. You schedule going to bed. You schedule watching the bake-off. You schedule watching footy. Whatever it is, schedule time with God when you can listen to him. Number four, maybe do it in the same place. Kind of being in regular routines and regular disciplines is helpful. It helps to kind of familiarize yourself with something that just feels like second nature. So for me, the dining room table is where I do it each morning. Number five, start small. If you're struggling, just start small. Five minutes, 10 minutes. Read one verse, meditate on it, pray over it. Number six, be accountable. Tell someone else that you're doing this so that they can support you and walk with you. Number seven, why don't you try a daily devotional? Maybe get a book to help you if you struggle to understand what what you're reading. Get a book that can kind of help you to understand it. If you don't want to get a book, try out Deep Joys. Google that podcast by John Piper. Deep Joys. It is a three minute audio clip where he reads scripture and expounds it in two minutes. Start with that. Three minutes on your way to work. Number eight, if you're struggling, ask. We are the family of God who are walking together in this. Ask and we will walk it together. Number nine, remember the grace of God. That morning when you sleep in and you feel guilty for not doing it, remember the grace of God. This isn't about law keeping. This isn't a a God, God who is a father who is saying, you need to do this or you're not getting your pocket money child. No, God God wants to speak to us. And when we struggle, he's still gracious. He's still loving towards us. I'm gonna send all those out in an email in a week. So don't worry if you didn't write all of those down. What does it look like to abide in truth? Avoid spending time with deceit. Saturate your life with the truth. And finally, depend on the spirit. Let me read verse 14 again. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Learned and believed. There are two things going on in what Paul is calling Timothy to. Remember what you have learned. Remember what has come into your head. Remember what you've studied. Remember when you've been sitting under me and I've been teaching you and it's kind of sat up here and you've learned cognitively who God is and who we are. Remember that. But also remember how you have believed it here. Remember how that knowledge has filtered down from your head to your heart. Who does that work there? The Holy Spirit. We can sit in front of this and pour all over this book hour after hour after hour. But if, the, if the Holy Spirit does not guide us into truth, these are just words on the page, folks. We need the Holy Spirit. Godly lives are lives which abide in the truth, not lives which just bury our heads in truth, but day by day depend on the Holy Spirit to help us to believe that this is truth. We cannot do it without it. We cannot abide in God's truth without his spirit. We are powerless to affect our hearts. And so we need his Holy Spirit. And so practically, I'd encourage you to do this. Before you start reading, before you start studying, pray. Just quickly pray. And you can use scripture as, as, as a prayer. Here's three that you could use, all from the, the Gospel of John. This is the one that I use before I start studying. John 16, 13, Holy Spirit, guide me into truth. Or you could do chapter 14, verse 26. Holy Spirit, teach me. Chapter 15, verse 26. Holy Spirit, help me see Jesus as I study your word. Maybe chapter 16, verse 14. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Simple prayer. Chose a wholehearted dependence on the Spirit to do a work in our heart to take truth from our head. What does it look like to abide in truth? Avoid spending time with deceit. Saturate your life with the truth and depend on the Holy Spirit. Do you love God? If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, You're sitting in spiritual blindness. God and God alone is the only one who is able to remove that. To change your sinful nature. And to help you to answer that question, yes I do. If you do love God, let me ask you this. Does your life and devotion reflect your love for him? Are you living a godly life? If you love him, would you pray with me now that we would do that, that we would live a godly life by abiding in his truth and that we would be able to discern deceit, we would be able to saturate our lives with his truth and we would be able to live lives which are fully dependent on his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess before you that without you doing a work in our hearts, We are sinners who are corrupt in our nature, destined for hell. Destined for an eternity without you. Destined to never know the fullness of your love being poured into our hearts. And so if there is unbelief here this morning, I ask that by your spirit you would save. That you would remove the spiritual blindness, that you would grant faith to believe that you are who you are that you would change the nature of those who are opposed to you to be in a nature which is for you. Would you pour your love into the hearts of those who don't know you in this place and across this community? Father, for those of us who do love you, we ask for your help. Thank you that you've already promised it for us, that you've given us your word, you've given us your spirit, and you've given us one another. Help us not to miss what is in front of us. We thank you that you showered us in these good gifts. Help us not to neglect your word. Help us if we truly love you, to listen to you. Not to push you out and to replace your voice of of truth and power and love and mercy and grace with deceitful voices. Help us by your Holy Spirit to discern deceit. To keep the the doors and the windows of of our life locked firmly shut. Help us to be bold and courageous in pushing these things out of our life if they are there. And help us by your spirit to prioritize our communion with you. Help us to abide in your truth, to remain in your truth, to continue in your truth, never to depart from it. And Jesus, as we ask these things, we thank you that because of your life, your death, your resurrection and ascension, that we know what it is to we know what it is to receive grace. You in and, and of yourself are the fullness of grace. And we thank you that when we fail and when we struggle and when we prioritize other things, you don't look at us any different. Your grace remains. But we ask for your help, Holy Spirit. Fill us, equip us, lead us, teach us. Help us to walk in disciplines. Not that we would just fill our heads with knowledge but that Jesus will be glorified in our lives as we live them in as godly a way as we can. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let me just read a couple of verses from uh, the start of John's gospel as we share uh, this meal together. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. As we share this meal together folks those of us who are his we have seen the glory of the son take this bread in remembrance of Jesus' body which was broken Jesus the living word broken for you and I we remember his body which was battered and bruised which was scourged and ripped apart as we take this wine and this juice we remember that Jesus' blood was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. So as we take this meal. Let us remember. Let us remember what it cost. For the truth of God. To be written on our hearts. Let us remember what it cost. For us to, to be taken from a nature. Which was entirely opposed to God. To a nature which is now. Bearing his resemblance. Which is now in him. Let us remember what it cost. For us to be made nothing. But slaves but sons and daughters let us remember Jesus as we take this meal the living word who dwells amongst us by his spirit who desires to speak to us and lead us into truth so let me just give thanks for this and when you're ready just come up and take of the bread, take of the wine and the juice if this is a time that you want to pray together with someone, please do that want someone to pray with you just grab someone and and one of us would love to do that this is a meal for those who are this this is a meal for those of us who will say and can say yes god we love you with all of our heart we love you and though we would struggle we still love you we have received your love we have received your grace let me pray lord jesus we thank you thank you for your perfect life. Thank you for your death on a cross. We thank you that it's because your body was broken and your blood was shed that we, your people, have received forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, and future. We thank you that no matter how we respond to your word this morning, that for those of us who are yours, for those of us who are your brothers and your sisters, that your love remains the same. You cannot love us anymore. We thank you that because of your perfect life and your death and your resurrection, we are now able to be in the presence of God, not not clothed in our unrighteousness and our sinful nature, but clothed in your righteousness, in your perfection, in your goodness. Thank you that through your resurrection, Jesus, we have been given newness of life now and we've been given the deposit of your gospel and we have been given your spirit And Holy Spirit, we pray now as we take this meal and we remind ourselves of the way that we have offended God this week, would you rush into our hearts and remind us that our sins have been forgiven, that we have been warned for Christ, and full atonement has been made for our transgressions. And Holy Spirit, would you give us strength to live godly lives, to remain in the truth, for the glory of the Son. It's in his name that we pray.